being changed. And uh, just seeing that, I want you to, to be invited to our baptism. We'll actually baptize these folks. It's over at the Hampton Inn. It's in the same parking lot here in Briar Creek that the movie theater's in. You don't even have to drive on a main road to get over there. In the Hampton Inn, we're going to be baptizing people at 1230. And we usually have about 100 people. We love to have 200 people uh, this time over there. Uh, just celebrating with these folks, that they're going public with their faith. They want the world to know that they're following Jesus, and that's why they're being baptized. And who knows what God's plan is for you there. Maybe you come to know Jesus yourself. Maybe you will be able to lead someone to Christ. John, who shared a story in there, just a neat story for him, as he saw Derek, the guy that he mentioned, getting baptized and then trusted Christ right after we were done with the baptism there. And uh, several folks able to be there as a part of that. And now they have a relationship, like a mentorship-type relationship between Derek and, and John. And who knows what God's plan is for you. And so we would love for you to come and be a part of that celebration with us today. And just want to give you a heads up, too, uh, especially those of you who have little kids, that today's message will be somewhat sexually oriented, and so be prepared for that. And we're going to pray as we continue our series called Relate, and I'm going to pray for us. Father God, thank you so much for the opportunity just to open up your word together. We thank you that you've rescued us from our sin. We thank you that so many of us know what it is to walk with you and that we would know that abundant life that Jad was talking about in worship. Father, I pray for any that don't know that. All these things may seem different and new and weird for some reason. Baptism, what is that? And salvation, that they would come to know you today. God, I pray today that you give them life, that you give them real life that comes from you. You give them your forgiveness. You'd wash them clean of their sins and they'd be able to walk with you. And Father God, I pray for each of us as we open up your word that we'd better be able to relate with the world around us for your glory and because of your plan. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, today we can continue the series that we started last week on Mother's Day. We talked about moms, and we were doing a relationship series, talking about moms relating to God, relating with others, relating with the world around them. And today we're going to talk specifically about singles, and we're going to talk about singleness. And so I'm going to ask you a simple question. What does it mean to be single? And many people will come in your minds immediately, a thought process of, that means you're not married. Or it means you're not in a relationship with a significant other of some sort. And what we want to do today is go beyond just that gloss definition of singleness and get at the heart, the essence of what it means to be single. Now, I know there's some difficulties for some of us. For some of you, you're in the stage of singleness right now. For others, you were in that stage at one time. We've all been single at one time, but it's been a long time. <laughs> I've known my wife now for 17 years, and so it's been a while for me. I've a little disconnected from that. So I did some reading about singleness. And did you know that church can be one of the weirdest places to go if you are a single. The obstacles that they have to overcome and some of the strange conversations that take place, some of us as marriage will need to repent for dumb things that we've said to singles as a result of the things you're about to learn in a few moments. And so I'm just preparing you for that so that your hearts, the soil is tilled at that moment. And some of you singles, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I went to a website this week called stuffchristianslike.com, and you can go to that. And they've got one section on there where they specifically dedicated to strange conversations, different obstacles. There were 40 different things on the website that singles have to do, and there was a point system based on if you've experienced these things. So I'm going to share a few of them with you, not all of them, but a few. And as I share them, singles, you can score yourselves. Those of you who are not single, if you've done these things, you can repent. So here they are. Perhaps you've been to a church before that takes their singles ministry and they combine it with their college ministry, which then affords opportunities for awkward conversations that go something like this. A student may say, my roommate, that's my freshman voice, my roommate bought a microwave for our dorm room. I love being a freshman. To which a single can respond, my 401k is underperforming. <laughs> if you've ever had a conversation like that as a single, that is two points for you. 
Maybe someone you just met for the first time says something like this. If you want to get married, you need to, and then fill in the blank. As if there's this secret formula out there for getting married. And all the married people know it, and all the single people don't. So if the married people would just share it with the single people, then everybody could be married. It's not grandma's secret recipe, okay? There's not a formula out there. And so if you've ever said something like this, you can repent. If you're single, two points for you for every time someone has said this to you. Perhaps someone has said something like this to you as advice. Very well-meaning, sounds very poetic. If you stop looking for love, you'll find it. (laughs) Let me pause and just ask you, would you say this about anything else you were looking for? If you lost your keys, would you say, stop looking for your keys and then you'll find them? You know, if you lost your wallet, go watch the Weather Channel and all of a sudden your wallet will appear. You would never do that. This is stupid advice, okay? Don't tell people this. It sounds nice. It's not right. How about this? If someone as a single ever paid you the world's most backhanded compliment, it goes something like this. I just don't understand how someone as great as you isn't married yet. (laughs) Implied in that statement is, if you're single, there's something wrong with you, but you happen to be the normal one that I just met. You realize how foolish this is. One point for that one. When people introduce you, do they feel compelled to list off your accomplishments? It'll go something like this. This is Sally, my single friend who owns her own home, drives a luxury sedan, and has a very, very stable job. That is three points. Singles. If you scored one point or more on that, we're sorry. For those of you who are not single, if you've ever done those things, let me just make you aware of a few other things. Not from a website, but I actually, being disconnected from the singleness for a while now, reached out to several singles in our church. And there's some themes that they shared with me. If someone's single, let me just let you know, and this will be for just the DNA of our church from here on out, okay? If someone's single, that does not mean they're at home twiddling their thumbs, waiting for you to call them and ask them to babysit. Doesn't mean they won't babysit. Doesn't mean they don't like babysitting. Some of them even clarified. However, it doesn't mean they don't have other things to do as well. If someone is single, that is not a disease. You do not need to apologize to them if they tell you that they're single. You do not need to send your condolences in any way, shape, or form. So if you've done this, don't have to feel guilty. We're done with it. We just will never do that again. If someone's single, That does not mean because you have one other single friend that's in the same age bracket that they would be a good match and you need to connect them. Okay? So don't do that. If they want to be connected, they will tell you. Those are just some of the things that people shared with me when I was asking them about singleness. And those are some of the experiences that singles have. And what we're going to talk about, because the population has a lot of single people in it, so we all have to relate with them. And some of you are in that stage of singleness. And what does it mean from God's perspective, beyond trite statements and beyond cliches, what does God really say about singleness? And today we're going to talk about the meaning of singleness. And we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me. It's in the New Testament. Going a little bit more towards the back, there are two books of Corinthians. We're in the first one, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'll begin reading in verse 1, but just to give you an idea of what this church is like, the guy who's writing to them, his name is Paul. Paul has spent a year and a half of his life preaching to these people, and they've been saved out of some very difficult backgrounds. We've used the word rescue in this service so far. We called, he rescued, we heard John David and his baptism testimony talk about being rescued from his sin. Many of these folks have been rescued out of a very difficult background. But if there's one church... In the entire New Testament, this should be easy for us living in America and going to church in America to relate to. It's the Church of Corinth. This is a church where their number one virtue was tolerance. That is the highest value of their culture, that they would tolerate one another and tolerate everything. 
And to this church, Paul finds out about some of the circumstances that are happening inside the church that are even worse than stuff that's happening outside the church. He says, you tolerate things that pagans don't even do. You've got incestuous relationships taking place. It's a very sexually charged community. You've got guys going to visit prostitutes as part of their worship. They're more sexually charged even than America, I believe. Perhaps not. Maybe they just give us a run for their money. But homosexuality, totally tolerated. Polygamy, tolerated. Uh, relationships within the family, tolerated. Sexual relationships. And not only that, but there's division in the church. Some people are saying they follow Paul rather than following Jesus. Follow other people and it breaks his heart. And he spends the first six chapters of the book writing to them about these issues. Divisions, lawsuits amongst one another, incestuous relationships, polygamy, all kinds of terrible stuff. And in the seventh chapter, he transitions. And he starts to answer questions that they specifically wrote to him. They wrote him these questions asking about specific things like marriage. The first question they ask has to do with marriage. And we don't know the exact wording of the question, but it had something to do with the idea of should someone marry or should they stay single? And remember, coming out of this background that they have, they're asking this type of question. And look at what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Now for the matters you wrote about. It's good for a man not to marry. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Now, this would be revolutionary in their time frame to put the husband's, wife in the, or the husband's body and the wife's body on the same plane to show this equality here. And then he says, because some people are doing this, they're, they're swinging the pendulum and responding to their sexually charged background. Do not deprive each other. Stop depriving each other in a marriage relationship from sexual relations except by mutual consent for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer for a specific spiritual reason. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And I say this, this idea that you take a break, that you abstain from sex for some period of time even in your marriage relationship as a concession, not as a command. You don't have to do this. But because of where some of you are at, I say it as a concession, not a command. Then back to singleness. He says, I wish that all men were as I am. He's single. But each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried, probably speaking to divorced folks, and to the widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now try and imagine what it was like to live in this Corinthian culture. It's so sexualized that they actually made up a verb about the Corinthians. To Corinthianize, would be like to say to Americanize. To Corinthianize was synonymous with to partake in sexual immorality. Their town was known for a temple, the temple of Aphrodite, that employed at one time over a thousand temple prostitutes. That's how you would worship there. And business was good. And that was the background of these people. Now try and imagine being those folks and Paul telling them the first thing in response to their question about marriage that singleness means celibacy. Trying to imagine the shock in their ears for him to say that singleness means celibacy. And that's our first point today. The singleness means celibacy. They're synonymous with one another. They go hand in hand together. And what does celibacy mean? For some people, you might think to yourself, what does that word even mean? It's kind of an ancient word. It means very simply this, no sex. Who could have the point B? Singleness means no sex. Singleness means no sexual relations. That's a more technical definition of celibacy. And so some people will hear that and go, well, where's the line then? Let me just tell you, if you're asking that question, it's way further back than what you think it is. 
Okay, if you wonder where the line is, when he says he's saying no sexual relations, can you imagine what it was like for Corinthians to hear that in such a sexually charged culture? Of course you can, because you live in America. And while we are behind them, we are probably not very far behind them and being okay with just about everything because tolerance is such a high virtue and the sexual immorality will run rampant and even come into the church. And so the idea of somebody being celibate seems so foreign, so silly. Like, nice for a guy to stand up in front and talk about, but who would actually do that? And so when somebody actually does it, what an opportunity to be a light in darkness. Think about in our society, when somebody actually talks like that, how odd it is. Some of you have heard of Tim Tebow before. Tim Tebow, for those of you who don't know, is probably one of the most popular athletes in the world right now. Uh, He's probably, for sure, the most popular backup quarterback that's ever existed in the NFL. Uh, He's a backup quarterback for the New York Jets right now. He's an outspoken Christian, believes about 24 years old. He said to reporters in one interview, somebody asked the question to him, are you saving yourself for marriage? He said yes, and they all got quiet. They didn't know what to do. And he's an outspoken advocate for abstinence, for waiting until you get married to have sex. Well, to give you an idea of what our culture is like, a couple months ago, I actually saw a headline where there was an advertisement put out that said $1 million bounty for anyone that they can prove they've slept with this man and a picture of Tim Tebow next to it. It was put out by a website that tries to connect people in adult- two married people in an adulterous relationship. That's the society that we live in. We assume that a man like that, he must be lying because no one actually does this. And then Paul writes to similar people and he says to them, singleness means celibacy. Look at where he says it in verse 1. The NIV, it says this, for the matters you wrote about, it's good for man not to marry. Now, what we have here is a translation of the Bible. The New International Version is what I was referring to when I said the NIV. And we have lots of translations of the Bible, the King James, the New American Standard, English Standard Version. They're all translations of the original Greek language. In Greek, this phrase doesn't actually say for a man not to marry a woman. The NIV has gone a little bit further than just translating. They've interpreted that statement. Very literally, the statement simply says, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And if you have an NIV study Bible or if you have certain types of NIV, it'll even say off to the side in a footnote or in some study notes, it'll say that type of thing. It's good for a man not to even touch a woman. So what does that mean? No high fives? No Christian side hugs out in the lobby? (laughs) What does it mean not to touch a woman? Well, not to touch a woman, in this scripture, in a sexual context, and this is a sexual context, read chapter 6, sexual context, that is a euphemism for having sex with a woman. And it's used throughout the scripture in sexual context. In Genesis chapter 20 and verse 6, you can read later, there's a story where the father of our faith, Abraham, his wife, Sarah, is apparently a good-looking lady. And he says to her, because you're good-looking, they're going to want to kill me and take you. And so why don't you lie and say that you're my sister? And they go to the situation where there's a man named Abimelech, takes her into his harem, and then God comes to Abimelech and says, I'm going to kill you because you just took a married woman. And then you see in verse 6, it says that he didn't even allow him to touch her. He didn't allow him to have sex with her. In the book of Ruth, there's a man named Boaz. He's very fond of this woman named Ruth. And he wants to let her pick grain in, in, in one of his fields. And he goes to his men to protect her. And he says, you don't touch her. He's saying, you don't have sex with her, not that one. In Proverbs chapter 6, it says this, Proverbs chapter 6, verses 28 and 29, can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. It's synonymous with sleeping with someone. And what Paul says here is it's good for a man not to sleep with a woman. 
not to have sex with a woman. Does this mean, by any stretch of the imagination, that sex is bad? No. Let me say this, side point, put it in your notes. Sex is good. And all God's people said? Amen. Amen. All right. Break the tension for talking about sex at church. Okay. Sex is a good thing. And you see it throughout Scripture. Repeatedly, sex is a great gift from God. In fact, you see in the book of Genesis that for this reason, a man will leave his mother and father, cut the apron strings, and he cleaves to his wife, and the two become one. Sex is a picture of marriage. It's symbolic of marriage. And it's used then in multiple ways to glorify God. One is that you're commanded to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth. It's used for procreation. And so sex is a good gift in that. It's a symbol of marriage. It's used to be able to fill the earth with with people that God has created. It's also used for pleasure. And that too glorifies God in the intimacy of a relationship between a husband and wife. And you see this talked about throughout Scripture. Now, you see sex talked about in Scripture in bad ways as well, how it's abused and adulterous thoughts and relationships and rape and all kinds of bad stuff. But you also see it exactly the way that God's created it to be. If you read the book of Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, depending on what translation of the Bible you have, they use different titles for that book. A husband talking about the intimacy and poetic language with his wife for pleasure. That same author, Solomon, says to his son, In Proverbs chapter 5, as he gives wisdom to his son, Proverbs chapter 5 uses poetic language to talk about the joy of a sexual relationship with your wife. In verse 18, it says this, May your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? You've been given this good gift. Why use it outside of the context that's been given? Sex is a great gift. The problem is what we oftentimes do is we tear it out of the context. The best analogy I've ever heard for this is if you've ever had a fire in a fireplace, maybe in your apartment you have a fireplace or in your house in your living room, there's a fireplace there. Fireplace is great, and it's great to have a fire in it. It can be used for, uh, to heat the home. It can be used to <laughs> help the moment for topic we're talking about. It can be used for lots of things. There's a tenant for it. At the very least, it's beautiful to see. But if you take those very same logs out of the fireplace and you set them in the middle of the living room, at first it resembles what it was meant to be. If you put it out quickly, best case scenario, you just have a mess. If you let it go, It can ruin a home. Everybody who comes into contact with it will be scarred. And those scars last. And they're painful. And that's what sex is like. In the context that God's given it, in a relationship between a man and a woman, a covenant relationship called marriage, it's a beautiful thing. In fact, it's created to glorify God by symbolizing marriage, by filling the earth for the enjoyment of two people with one another, a celebration of their intimacy. But pulled out of that context, best case scenario, you have a mess. Many people here will testify that it leaves scars. It can ruin homes. And it's interesting, if you read the Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, that Solomon actually has a phrase that, that sticks out through the book. He says, do not awaken love before it is time. Do not awaken love before you're into the context that God's intended it for it to be. Do not awaken love before it's time. Something I challenge you, if you have little ones, to share that with them. Begin to teach them that. There's a time for this love to be awakened. Here's the problem. In our culture, in our society, there are constantly things that are trying to spark and fan that fire. And once that fire gets started, it's very hard to put it out. We live in a culture 
where every second, 30,000 people are viewing pornography. Every second. That means in four seconds, there's over 100,000 people that are viewing pornography. We live in a culture where the average age for the first exposure to internet pornography is 11 years old. And then the scripture tells us, do not awaken love before it is time. Over 100,000 people, 11 years old. Married people, here's a couple stats for you. Did you know that in divorces today, 56% of them attribute one of the main causes for the divorce, pornography. 56%. And this is for married people. Those who are involved in pornography or use pornography, whether in the marriage or outside the marriage, are 300%. This is a real stat. I didn't make this up. 300% more likely to cheat on their spouse. This is the culture that we live in. And to us, Paul says, singleness means celibacy. You use the gift in the context. There, it's a good gift. Read verses 2 through 5. He actually says not to deprive each other of this gift. That It's part of being married. It is a good gift to be celebrated, but not outside of that. Not for married people outside of that. Pornography, emotional affairs, sexual affairs. It's not for that. For single people, not for you. Not at this time because you're not in that context. Now, some people will hear this, and you'll say to yourself, oh, but I'm different. And so here's why you're different. You've got various circumstances. Maybe you're 30, maybe you're 40, maybe you've been married before, maybe you're divorced, maybe you've been widowed, and you look at me and you say, well, you know, he's 35, he's married, he doesn't understand, so I'm just going to disregard what he says. All right, I think this is very interesting, that God would actually choose the author of Scripture that he chooses to write these statements. He could have chosen Luke, he could have chosen Peter, he could have chosen John, he could have chosen a lot of different people. Mark, he chooses Paul. Paul's a single guy. But what we oftentimes don't talk about is that most scholars believe that Paul was probably married before. And here's why. We don't have chapter and verse that says who Paul was married to and what happened and all that type of stuff. But Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a Jewish rabbi. It was an obligation of Jewish rabbis to be married. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, or chapter 3, that he didn't violate any of the legalistic righteousness. As far as legalistic righteousness, he was faultless. He didn't violate any of the rules of the Pharisees. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisee. And their rules stated that a Jewish rabbi had to be married by the time they were 18 years old. Their belief was if you weren't married by the time you were 18 years old, you were violating a positive command, the command to be fruitful and multiply. They believe very strongly it's not good for man to be alone, and they view that the only way they're to be together is to be in a marriage relationship. And so if you were single, you were a second-class Christian, certainly not able to be a rabbi. And Paul says he kept all those rules. Many people believe that because of Acts chapter 26, you can write that down and study it on your own later, Acts chapter 26, verse 10, that Paul was part of the Sanhedrin. If you're part of the Sanhedrin, it was a requirement of all members of the Sanhedrin to be men who were married. And Paul classifies himself in this very passage as one of those who are widowed or divorced. So in this passage, there's three classifications. There are the virgins, that we talked about later, those who've never married before. And there are the unmarried, which are probably divorced people. And there are the widows. And when Paul says, I wish that you were as I am, he then talks to those who are unmarried and widowed, not to the virgins. And he says, it'd be better for you not to marry again, but if you don't have the gift like I do, you burn with passion, then you should marry and he classifies himself with these folks. And so here's a guy that knows exactly what you're going through, and he says, not for you. Sex has a context. It's been a gift from God. It is a good gift. And it's a great thing to be experienced in a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. It celebrates their intimacy and demonstrates God's glory. But it's not to be torn out of that context. So singleness means celibacy. Now what if I've blown it? Well, the first thing you need to do is this. Agree with God about sex. 
agree with God that it's his gift used in a specific context. And if you've blown it, then stop and turn to him. It's called repentance. Stop blowing it. If you're married and you've been using porn, if you're married, you've been having an affair, stop today, right now. If you're single, you're living together, you're single, you're sleeping with somebody, stop. Stop today and turn to God. Let me give you some practical advice and you tell somebody else. Not the person you're sleeping with. But you tell somebody else that will tell you the truth. We'll have a response team after the service. You want to tell them, you tell them. You want to talk to somebody in your community group, you've got to talk to somebody that will tell you the truth. When you need to hear about God's grace, they will speak God's grace into your life. And when you're going down a path that's going to cause you harm, they're going to tell you that. And I tell you that not to humiliate you because of the mistake that you've made, but to protect you from more scars. Singleness means celibacy, but it means a lot more than just that. Singleness means celibacy for all. For some, singleness means giftedness. That's our second point. Singleness means giftedness for some, not for all. But see how Paul talks about it here in this passage. In verse 7, he says, I wish that all men were as I am. He's talking about single. And then he says, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, the gift that he has. Another has that. And then he goes on. Now to the unmarried and widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion or burn with lust. So how do you know if you have this gift? You have this gift if you are single and you're not longing for a sexual relationship with somebody who's not your spouse. If you don't have this gift, and he tells you what to do, get married. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Easier said than done, right? Where's the formula? <laughs> He's wise enough not to give us the formula. He doesn't tell us how to make a love connection here, but he is telling us that the response is marriage. But there are some that have this gift. This is a gift from God. That means this. Singles are not second-class Christians. Singles don't have a problem. They don't have a disease. There's not something we need to fix about them. That singleness can be a gift for some something that they'll embrace for their entire life, that God has them at this unique spot. And do you know this is one of the unique things about Christianity? If you look at all the other major world religions that worship one God, people call that monotheism, there's a single God that they worship. So I'm talking about Judaism, Islam, Mormonism, those types of religions. They all talk about how good marriage is, and so does Christianity, which is a single God religion. And you read through the scriptures, Genesis 2, 24, that God created marriage. He's the one who instituted it in Proverbs. You see in the Proverbs, it says, he who finds a wife finds what is good. In Ephesians, it talks about how marriage is good. It's a picture of the love between Christ and the church, between a husband and a wife. It's good. And so they all should talk highly about marriage. But Christianity is the only one, the only one that speaks highly of singleness. We don't oftentimes even talk about singleness. But Christianity, one of its uniquenesses is that a single is not a second-class citizen. In fact, it's good to be single. And do you know why that is? Well, it's the thing that's different from Christianity and Judaism and Mormonism and Islam is that Christ is sufficient for all, that you don't need marital status to gain favor before God. It's not about your educational status, your financial status, your marital status, any of that stuff that Jesus Christ is the one who's sufficient. And so because of God's only begotten, uniquely given Son, Jesus Christ, we're able to experience all spiritual blessings only through Him, not through 
taking more communion, not through reading more Bible verses, not through more church attendance or marriage or any of that stuff. It's through Christ and Christ alone because Jesus Christ is sufficient. And the single has a unique opportunity to put the sufficiency of Jesus Christ on display, unlike a married person does. Now, the married person has a unique opportunity to demonstrate the gospel as well. Just like we talked about last week, the mother, through her selfless love of her children, has a unique opportunity to put the love of Jesus, the gospel, on display. The single has a unique opportunity to put the sufficiency of Christ on display. But it's not just because you're single. It's when you're single and you realize the sufficiency of Jesus Christ in your life. That what you're putting on display is not your own self-sufficiency, your own dependence, your job, your reputation, the idea of marriage, some future spouse, anything that you could possibly fill the gap in with that would be on the throne of your life that would be central to you. That's called an idol. But when Jesus Christ rules and reigns, your identity is found in him and who you are because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The sufficiency of Jesus is seen through your life as a single and a unique way. In fact, many people don't realize it's a glimpse of eternity because we'll all be single again. We've all been single once. Do you realize we're all going to be single again? And I have to pause when I say a statement like that because it's one of those easy ones like, he's trying to say we're not going to be married in eternity. I know that my dog's going to be there and I'm going to be married. Okay, we won't talk about the animals today. There's a horse, probably not a lot of dogs, the ones I've met, and there will be no marriage. And there's no marriage because Jesus says so. Think about it. Jesus was asked a question one time by a group of guys about a woman who married multiple men. And, she, and they, were, they asked, who is she going to be married to in eternity? And Jesus responded with this in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 30. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. There will be no marriage. And think about what marriage is for. Marriage is for a picture of the relationship that Jesus has with the church. We're going to be with Jesus. Marriage is for procreation, that we would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We're going to be with the creator of the universe. Marriage is for, in this passage of scripture, one of the reasons we're given is if you burn with lust, you get married. It's a, a guard against sin. There will be no sin in heaven. Marriage won't be needed in heaven. Do you know why? Because Jesus Christ is so sufficient. And the single has a unique opportunity through their lives to demonstrate the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. It's a picture of the gospel. When you demonstrate that you have a sufficient Savior, so many in our culture have functional Saviors. Whether it's alcohol, whether it's drugs, whether it's work, whether it's reputation, whether it's their money, whatever it is. And you as a single, when you demonstrate the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, that you don't need to, like Tim Tebow, doesn't need to go sleep around. You don't need to find your sufficiency in all the things that you're able to do to prove to everybody that you're still a normal person. You don't need to have children in order to be complete. You don't need to be married in order to be complete. That your completeness is found in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is putting the sufficiency of Jesus on display. And you have a unique opportunity to do that as a single. Singleness is good. For some, it's a gift. And there are some practical realities to being single as well. Paul talks about him in this passage. He talks about the freedom that a single has that a married person just doesn't have. And when he talks about, I wish that you were like me, it's not to restrict you, it's for your benefit. He says in verse 32, I'd like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs and, and how he can please the Lord, but a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and he should be. Right, man? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, and his interests are divided. <laughs> Deafening silence. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord, both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. She should be. Oh, amen. Amen. Yeah. <clears throat> 
And then Paul says this, I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Singles, it's not that you don't have other stuff to do. It's not that you don't have responsibilities and jobs and you have a life to live and people to meet with, but you have a unique freedom that married people just don't have. You control your own schedule. You provide for yourself, not for other people too. You are responsible for you. What happens when you get married, and it's not bad, it's just what happens is you actually make a covenant before God that you're going to commit to another person. And then if you have children, you're responsible for those children too. So you now have as a single, just very practically, the opportunity to have a freedom that married people don't have. You've got a freedom. If God calls you to do something, he wants you to quit your job. He wants you to move to Iraq. He wants you to give away all the money you have. If he wants you to give away all your time, whatever he desires for you to do to take a step of faith in following him, you only have to answer for yourself. A married person still responsible to obey God, do whatever he says, whenever he says it, however he says it. But you have to think about, you just have to, as a faithful follower of Jesus, because you've made a commitment before God, you have to think about how does this decision affect these other people? How does it affect my spouse? How does it affect these kids? If I do this, then what's going to happen? You don't just give away all your money without talking to your wife. You don't just say, we're all moving to Iraq without at least mentioning it to your husband. You, you just, you talk to each other. It's the nature of being married. And Paul's saying, for the single, you don't have that. Embrace that. You've got a unique opportunity and a unique freedom. And I shared with you that I reached out to different folks in our church to try and get a feeling for what it was like dumb things people said and what you hope I say, what you hope I don't say, and all those types of things. And one young lady shared this with me and her response. She said, I'll be honest. This is her email to me. She told me I could read it. I laughed a bit when I read your email because I can't tell you how often I get asked about being single or how often it comes up. It's all the time. I honestly wouldn't trade it right now. I may feel differently down the road, but I have more freedom than most people I know. I've learned more about Jesus in depths I didn't know existed because I am free to focus solely on him and our relationship and to pursue his leading without other ties. He's shown me that this is a sweet time with him to enjoy him and desire him and learn more about him in a way that may not always be. In parentheses, she says, if I get married and have to share time with a spouse and her children, it would be different. Better not work, just different. Do I struggle? Is it hard? Yes. Sure. I have days of feeling wonderful about being completely alone with the Lord and other days where I desire companionship and intimacy. But knowing that the Lord indeed has my best interest at heart because I am created for his glory allows me to trust that if and when he desires for me to be joined with a mate, he will do it and not me. Until then, I desire to know him more deeply and each day to pursue his design of me and in that time meet with him in new depths along the way and along the journey. And she goes on to quote John Piper, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. She says, I love that quote, and to experience that, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, able to be experienced in a different way because of singleness. And for some, it's a gift. For some of you, it is a gift that you will carry this whole life. For others, it's a stage. For everyone, singleness means celibacy. For some, it means giftedness. And for some, for many, it means a stage. John Stott, Christian theologian is also single, and he says the general will of God is that people will marry. That's what will happen for the majority of people. But for some, they live in this abnormal stage of singleness, and that's where he lives, and that's where some of you are at right now. Well, even Paul acknowledges here that singleness is not for everyone. In verse 7, when he says, I wish that all men were as I am, he's acknowledging implied in that statement is they're not. 
but each man has his own gift. For one, it's this gift of singleness. For others, it's the gift of marriage, which will be true for the majority of people. He tells the widows and the unmarried that it's not good for them to stay single, to try and become more spiritual, like it's more elite, which is not at all what he's saying in this passage. If they burn with this passion, if they don't have the gift, they should marry. In verse 38, later in this passage, he says, so then he who marries the virgin, he's talking about people that are engaged. Some of them behaved inappropriately with their fiancés. He says, for them, he who marries the virgin, you do what's right. He who doesn't marry the virgin, you do what's even better. Either one's right. Get married, don't get married. It's a stage for some. For most, God's will will be marriage. But that might not be where you're at right now. And if you're single right now, what do I say to you if you don't have the gift? Here's what I say. Embrace where you're at. It's a unique time. It is a good time. And you know what? I want to say a side comment to those of you who are friends with singles, and specifically those of you who are parents, to people that you thought would get married before the age that they currently are. So if you have kids and you thought they'd be married by and you fill in the blanks, whatever the age magical number was for you, and they're past that, can I just say lay off? Let them embrace that stage. One of the people that I wrote to wrote me back and said that they believe that they're going to get married someday, but they're content being single. And the hardest part about being single is mom. Because mom so wants to hook them up with somebody and so wants them to be married and so wants them to have kids. They're actually content with their stage of life. It's their parents that aren't that makes their life so difficult. Lay off, mom and dad. And friends that are trying to constantly hook somebody up. Lay off. If they want to be connected, they'll tell you. Otherwise, let them demonstrate the sufficiency of Jesus. Maybe their heavenly father knows better than you about his plan for their lives and where he has them right now. So just lay off. Singles, embrace where you're at. Enjoy that freedom and the ability to demonstrate in a unique way the sufficiency of Jesus in your life. But if you know that it's a stage, live in light of the future. It doesn't mean that you constantly think about how the grass is greener and one day when you're married and it's all about these things, but embrace where you're at fully in view of where you believe you will be someday. And by that I mean that you have a picture of the future and you think about that picture my wife sent me a blog this week. We've got a friend who we went to college with who's a lady who's single, unexpectedly single. Her husband passed away about a year ago uh, through a tragedy, and she's a very gifted writer. My wife's been blessed by her life. And on her blog, I believe it was about a week ago, she posted a story by Donald Miller, actually. He's another author, a Christian author. And uh, he's written several books, and so people like to meet with him, ask for spiritual advice and whatnot. And there was this one young lady who was going to write a better story for her life based on something she had read in a book by Donald Miller. And she wrote him, said that she wanted to meet with him, and she said, I'm doing it, Donald. I'm writing a better story for myself. I'm going to take the next six months off, and I'm going to go travel through Spain. And he sits there as one who's been asked to come to this meeting to give her words of wisdom. And so if you're a man who has a sister or has daughters, you can imagine all the warnings you'd want to give at that moment. You're going to spend six months traveling through Spain. Don't drink your way through Spain. Don't sleep your way through Spain. Don't do all, you don't do, make all these problems and you know, all that kind of stuff. But go see these things. It'll be great. And you probably want to say all that stuff. He doesn't. He just celebrates with her about the trip she's going to have. He tells her, you're going to have a great time. And she talks about what it's going to be like. But she's waiting for a word from him to take with her, something that she can think about, something that she can reflect on while she's traveling through this time. And he slightly changes the conversation with her. And he says, do you think you're going to get married someday? And she kind of lights up. And she says, yeah, I do. And he said, tell me about the man. And she wasn't dating anyone at the time. So this anonymous person, she starts to describe it. She gets real starry-eyed, Donald said. 
And she starts to describe this man who she mentions multiple times as good looking. <laughs> and so she doesn't know him. He's anonymous, but apparently very handsomely anonymous man that she's going to marry someday. And so she's talking about this and dreaming about this. And then he asks another question. He says, do you think you'll have children? And she says, oh, yes, I want to be a mom. And she talks about what it's going to be like to be a mom. And he says, okay, can you picture a scene with me for a minute? And he says, will you picture a scene where you're in a hospital room and your husband's standing next to you and you just give him birth to your first child and your husband's going to be handsome. So your child looks kind of like your husband and they're standing there together. Can you picture that scene? And she says, yes, I can. And she's kind of dreamy. And he says, don't do anything in Spain to jeopardize that picture. Don't do anything in Spain to jeopardize that picture. And to you singles, I say this. Single woman, can you picture your future spouse if you believe God hasn't given you the gift of singleness and you're going to get married someday? You picture a man who loves Jesus Christ with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, all of his strength. You picture a man who you'd actually want to lead your home, to lead you spiritually, to lead your children spiritually. Can you picture that guy? He's probably leading himself spiritually now. He's leading others spiritually now. He's able to hold on to a job. We don't know if he's handsome or not handsome, but he's got a beauty that comes about him as he demonstrates Jesus through his life, that he's being sexually pure at this moment, that he's living in relationship with other people that are speaking truth into his life at this moment, that he's a man that you could respect. Can you picture that man? Now picture the day that you stand at the altar with that man and you look into his face and you make promises before God about what your marriage and your relationship is going to be like. And don't do anything today to jeopardize that picture. And man, can you picture a woman who loves Jesus Christ and is submitted to him and who's looking for a man to actually submit to that can lead her spiritually, that she can respect? Can you picture a woman who loves with a Christ-like kind of love that we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, a selfless kind of love, the kind of woman that you'd want to nurture your children, the kind of woman that you would like to do life with, the kind of woman that you think could be the wife of yours. It's a picture of the love of Jesus Christ and the love of the church. Can you picture that woman? And can you imagine being at the altar with her and making promises to her? about how you're going to love her, how you're going to lead her, how you're going to protect her, how you're going to provide for her, how you would give your life for her. That's a picture of marriage. Don't do anything to jeopardize that picture. But what if you already have? What if you already, well, statistics will tell us that one in four guys has looked at porn last night. So what if that's your problem? Or what if you've got a relationship and you're not sure if you want to marry her, but you're having a lot of fun or ladies, what if you've given yourself thinking he'd be there and then he's not? You got wounds and scars and difficulty and you're making bad decisions right now. Let me remind you, First John 1, 9 is true for you. All things are made new at the cross of Christ and that he's faithful. If we confess our sins, that's we tell him the truth about what we've done. He already knows. But we've got to come to grips with how we've separated ourselves from God as a result of our sin. He's faithful. He is just. And he will forgive, not we work it off by being good enough, feeling guilty enough, doing enough stuff. He will forgive because we have a sufficient Savior. He will forgive us our sins and purify us from, and don't miss this word, little word, all unrighteousness. So if you believe a lie for a moment, then not this thing. Maybe it's the thing you just did last night. Maybe it's something that happened six months ago. Maybe it's something you're vowed that no one will ever know is true about you. He will cleanse you of all 
unrighteousness. All of it, because he's a sufficient savior. And so what some of you need to do is come to know that sufficient savior today. You may have a functional savior. It may be your job. It may be alcohol. It may be multiple different things, but you need the sufficient savior who can actually cleanse you from your sins and give you true satisfaction in him, Jesus Christ. And you do that by admitting your sin before him, that he died on the cross to pay for those sins, and he's sufficient to cleanse you. And trust him as your savior today. Some of you know Jesus. You still need to come back to the cross. All things are made new there as you lay your stuff at the foot of the cross. And he can even take that, those scars and that messed up fire and all that stuff and turn it into something beautiful for his glory because he is a sufficient savior. Many of us need to repent today. Repent for how we treated signals. Repent for how you've treated your kids. Repent for things that we've done sexually outside of our marriage, things that are happening in our life right now, and repent by that. I mean, stop and turn to God, agree with him, and receive the cleansing and forgiveness that he offers. Singleness, what does it mean at the tart? It means celibacy. It means a gift for some. And it means a stage for many. And while you're in that stage, put on display the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you with a spirit of humility as we come with a spirit of repentance. Each of us, married, single, widowed, young, God, we come before you acknowledging you're God, we're not. And any sin that we have, we come and we bring it to the cross right now. We ask for your cleansing. We believe you are faithful. We confess sin to you. We even confess specific sin to you. And you can do that in your heart right now as you pray. Some of you in here may need to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. Just acknowledge your sin before him. Each one of us are sinners. Acknowledge your sin before him and pray and ask him, will you be my Savior? I need a sufficient Savior. Will you be my Savior, Jesus Christ? And ask him to be your Savior today. Surrender your life to him. You can't do it. You need him. If you pray that prayer, I just would ask you, come speak to someone on our response team before you leave today. If you need someone to pray with, you need someone to talk to, maybe it's about something that I didn't even mention in the message today. Maybe you had a burden when you walked in here that you wanted to pray with somebody about. Our response team will be available on each side of the auditorium as we sing and as we dismiss. Father, I pray for those that are single specifically. I lift them up before you and I ask that the sufficiency of your son Jesus Christ will be demonstrated, put on display through their lives. I pray for those of us that are married, God, I pray that you would see in our lives a desire to love you as we love all that we come into contact with. For your glory, and because you are gracious, we praise your name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.